from PRX. Stew. Stew. Dear. Dear. Oh. Studio. That's it. Right? Studio. 360 with Carl Anderson. Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson. I listen to it on the uh, radio in my car. Oh, don't be sniffy about I'm not pens. being sniffy. I think I'm you a, are. No, no. You've got a nose for it. Oh, gosh. Wow. What are you saying over there? Today on the show, what are people going to think about us? What are people in the community going to say about us? You know, it's not easy to write this. And my mother said it wasn't sexy enough. Keep listening. Stay right there. Don't go anywhere. Stay. Sit. Donald Trump is an extremist leader who came out of nowhere. He's self-financed, recruits through social media, attracts his followers with a radical ideology to take over the world, and is actively trying to promote a war between Islam and the West. Donald Trump is white ISIS. Wisis. <laughs> As jihadi attacks continue around the world and the Trump administration keeps trying to institute its travel ban on immigrants from seven countries that happen to be majority Muslim, it is a dicey time for American Muslims. But life seems unusually great right now for Hassan Minaj, whose Muslim parents immigrated here from India. The 31-year-old comic is killing it as a correspondent on The Daily Show. He just released a new comedy special on Netflix and recently appeared as the comedian at the White House Correspondents' Dinner, the first Muslim to do so, just as President Trump became the first president to skip the dinner in 36 years when Ronald Reagan missed it because he was recovering from being shot. Jeff Sessions going to be here tonight? He was busy doing a pre-Civil War reenactment. <laughs> On his RSVP, he just wrote no, just no, which happens to be his second favorite N-word. See, I love I love the ones that get the groans <laughs> from right. that audience. Me too. They suck as an audience, don't they? I mean, it is I, I've been to it, that event. Okay, Washington politicians, journalists—they're they're squares. I got great advice from previous performers. Larry Wilmore gave me this piece of advice, and it's two things. He was like, "Keep your foot on the gas. Don't let the groans yes, throw you off. Yes. Keep your foot on the gas. And number two, don't apologize or qualify anything." There are so many rich, powerful people in this room. You know, it's nice to finally match the names. To the faces in the Panama Papers. It's very nice, right? <laughs> Groans are good. Groans are good. So I had done all the long division in my head. <laughs> yeah. I had run I had run through the set yeah. with the writers, my head writer Prashant. I had ran it by Steve Bodo. I had Who's done the, the executive producer, executive producer of the Daily Show. Guys who had been to war, who've been into this room, who are familiar with what I'm about to go into. And so I had cleared in my conscience and with my close group of collaborators that I trust that these are all fair jokes. In other words, I, I wanted to be cutting but not cruel. I wanted to make fun of people for their merit, not their looks. Were there any uh, like jokes that you just decided, oh, this is really good and this killed in the clubs, but it's just too mean for this room? Yeah, there was a joke that we had about something along the lines of the, the day before Trump was speaking to the NRA in Atlanta. Um, as you know, he's also recently signed an executive order making it even easier for people with severe mental illnesses to get a gun. So in case you're wondering, Donald Trump is loving his new gun. To imply that he's mentally ill, again, there's things that I wanted to do that I didn't want to make these huge leaps. I made a choice. I was like, let's do – I did this joke about – you know Trump doesn't drink, right? That means every statement 
every interview, every tweet, completely sober. How is that possible? That to me is, uh, again, a more clever cutting joke than being like, and he's mentally ill. So uh, how long before uh, that gig at the end of April did you get this call? Three weeks. Really? Three weeks. Like it was one of those things no one wanted to touch. But I thought that, hey, this isn't – we're at a very interesting moment in our country. And who I am given my background is also to me a big middle finger to the administration. And I have a unique perspective. I, I felt like maybe I have something to add. Did you – and there were – you immediately said, yeah, sure, I'll do this? No, I had to think about it for a little bit because, again, you, you get that call and you're like, well, I'm not trying to belittle myself, but why are they asking me? Yeah. There was this thing of like, wait, if these other people that are far more successful than me are saying Do they no, know something I don't Do they know something I don't yes, know? Yes, yes, You know. yeah. Did you watch old ones uh, to prepare? Like, like I remember the Colbert one when Colbert was new. Yeah, I watched everybody's going into it, and Stephen became the the bar because he did this brilliant performance artist piece with George W. Bush, which George sitting, w. Bush right next sitting right there. Now I know there's some polls out there saying that that this man has a 32 percent approval rating, but guys like us, we don't we don't pay attention to the polls. We know that, that polls are just a collection of statistics that reflect what people are thinking in reality. And reality has a well-known liberal bias. And then, you know, Seth Meyers in 2011 had this brilliant, very tactical, individual roast of the room. And then this run on Donald Trump, which became infamous and viral in and of itself. Donald Trump has been saying that he will run for president as a Republican, which is surprising since I just assumed he was running as a joke. <laughs> Donald Trump said recently he has a great relationship with the blacks, though unless the blacks are a family of white people, I bet he's mistaken. If Trump had been there, would you have done a different – I mean obviously of course, it would be different. Of but would it be totally different? I think that my closing statement definitely would have been different. That you get serious at the end. Yeah, and my closing statement was, was about – again, at that point, at, for 20 minutes, I had you know been giving it to the administration and uh, the president and also media. I, there was this connecting point where I talked about the 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 curve that they're being graded on. That you know you got to be twice as good. You can't make any mistakes because when one of you messes up, the administration blames the entire group. And now you know what it feels like to be a minority, right. which was excellent. And and again, it wasn't just that one joke. You kind of went on, yeah, in, in a way that I, I as they did the shots of people reacting, I thought, oh, they're they're getting this. They're, yeah, they're, they're getting yeah. this. So if you want to survive the age of Trump. You got to think like a minority. And now that you're a minority, oh man, everyone is going to expect you to be the mouthpiece for the entire group. So I hate to say it, but somewhere right now, all of you are being represented by Geraldo Rivera. I laughed out loud. Yeah, like, like to me, I'm just like, let me, uh, let me now paint the picture. But that came from, uh, look, I just want to speak from my perspective. And maybe to survive the age of Trump, you have to start thinking like a minority. Because these are the you have to deal with the same variables right. I have to and, deal with. And and yes, Hassan, you're one of the good ones. You're the one someone's been like, yeah. Which which now people right. say to people who work at the New York Times. Sure. <laughs> oh, that was a good story. You're actually one of the good ones. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Len Thrush, you're one of the good ones. Yeah. Did did was there any conversation given the weirdness of this year and this president and everything else with the organizers saying, 
Hassan, maybe don't go there. Or maybe don't do this. Yeah, I mean, when Jeff Mason uh, announced that I was going to be the comedian to perform, who's the president of the the White House Correspondent Association for this year, he did it on Morning Joe, and you know, he said, I, "We don't, we didn't want to choose a a host who would roast the president in absentia." And that, you know, as we would have conversations over the the weeks leading up to the event, he kind of, you know, reiterated that point. I had pitched some ideas. Did that piss you off? A little bit, yeah, because I wanted to – the theme of the night, there's a blue banner behind me protecting the First Amendment. And you want me to censor myself to appease the emotions of the president. And to me, the hypocrisy of that is so messed up. Because he's the one who abuses his First Amendment rights and doesn't even want to attend an event that celebrates the very amendment he abuses on a daily basis. And you want me to, like, play nice with him? I think that died January 20th. So you so you basically said, I'm going to go ahead and say what I'm going to say about Donald Trump regardless of what you guys are saying? It wasn't that I was going to just say anything willy-nilly. Right. I was no, just I going to say how I really feel. Right. right. You know, and just be honest. From Comedy Central's World News Headquarters in New York, this is The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. For all kinds of reasons, you and The Daily Show are in an interesting place in this post-fact, we don't care about reality, we'll believe whatever we want to believe era. Yeah, we're in this interesting middle world, so to speak. You go and do these field pieces in quote-unquote, middle America, in Texas or wherever. You, You reported from the Republican National Convention in Cleveland. Yes. Do you feel like this... Is, is giving you an opportunity to, to interact with regular folks who, for instance, Trump voters, that you wouldn't have had otherwise? 100 percent. Let's take an issue that was like the repeal and replace of Obamacare. I want to try to understand where are you coming from because I do – you think what you're doing is right. This I, And I think it's relative. People are looking at me. They're, they're going, this Indian American Muslim kid is standing here and he wants to get rid of the Muslim ban. So he wants to risk American lives to let some Syrian refugees come into our country. Wow, great. He's trying to put us in danger. And I'm looking at Paul Ryan saying the same thing. You're trying to put 24 million American lives in danger. Where's the where's the disconnect? What am I not seeing on his side and what is he not seeing on my side? In in this Netflix special, which yeah. is not so much about the politics of being Muslim or anything else, it's, but it's about being Muslim and yes. about being an immigrant, yeah. which you aren't, but your parents <laughs> yes. were. Child of immigrants, uh, yeah. And about – romance and all those family and all those normal comedic uh, subjects. It's called Homecoming King. Yes. Uh, here is a clip. Right? Like, roll call was a problem. It was a big deal for, like, a lot of us. Yeah, I would get all, like, Hanson Menaja, <laughs> Sahan Minha, Saddam Hussein. There are, as we heard, traditional stand-up jokes, but the format in general, if you watch it for a while longer, it has this different, slower, more storytelling-like pace, it yes. seemed to me, than just Seinfeld. Yeah. I did that on purpose because I wanted to do things on stage that are a little bit more evergreen, but still contemporary in work. And th- personal stories, I think, do have that lasting power. What's interesting is a lot of those themes that I talk about in the show, race, identity, what does it mean to be an American, what does it mean to be a patriotic American, love, all these things – I think are still relevant in 2017 America, um, but they are grounded in just my my personal experience. And doing the special as a theatrical show gives me again the leeway to go between 
traditional setup punch jokes, but then also just parts that are more poignant and just a little bit more thought-provoking where I don't need a la- X amount of laughs per minute. I'm going to play another clip th- from your Netflix special. This is uh, talking about your parents' yeah. meeting. In 10 minutes, <laughs> the man married a woman he had never laid eyes on. You understand that's Tinder with no photos. It's like, yeah, I want that for the rest of my life. I hope she has a good personality. Let's move to the United States where we're the only people that know each other. You also joke about your, your father in the correspondence dinner thing. Uh, how, how do your parents react to this? The show Homecoming King, it does very intimately talk about this tension, this generational tension between me and my dad, the way in which immigrants look at this country and the way I do, the way my dad very pragmatically was against comedy, me having a girlfriend, uh, me making a lot of the choices that I made in my life from strict pragmatism and practicality. Hey, man. You are my first-round draft pick. I brought you to America. You are the Simba to my Mufasa. You have to deliver the yeah. dream to Pyrrha. I bet he didn't say that. But, but, <laughs> yes, I get but it. it boils down to yeah. that. Yeah. So why are you going to the craps table called the American Dream and rolling and betting on comedian? That embodied so much of what my parents, my dad specifically was about. And for me, it was about you know choice and having the audacity of equality and all these you know nuanced sort of takes on what it means to be American. It worked out, and I'm again, I'm lucky that over the course of the show in my life that I've both me and my dad have been able to have a much better understanding of one another. And the things that he ultimately was fighting for are actually quite honorable. I see sure. a lot of the truth in what he's saying. And he's, you know, but is when he hears you making jokes about uh, to, to, to the <laughs> yeah, yeah. Washington leaders, is he Oh, dude, Hassan. You know, I was standing on the podium, and I look over. My parents are actually sit- – I brought my oh, parents there, yeah. my parents and my sister. And I look over to the right, and my sister and my de- mom and dad are, like, on the edge of their seats. They were so nervous for me. Proud of you, no doubt. Sure, but they also were – they also knew the magnitude of what was going on, and they didn't want they didn't want me to mess up. And then that be the headline, you know. Um, but uh, I remember when I made the Costco joke. We all love our parents. But we wouldn't endorse them for president. <laughs> like if someone's like, hey, Hassan, should your dad be president of the United States? I'd be like, my dad, Najmi Minaj? <laughs> the guy who tries to return used underwear to Costco? <laughs> my dad just kind of winced a little bit. But then he looked up and he saw everybody else sort of laughing. And I think in that moment, he realized, oh, everybody kind of has a dad that tries to return used underwear to Costco. It's okay. <laughs> and there's this theme that I talk about in the show called Lokyakenge, what will people think? What will people say? It's this concern that I think a lot of people have, and especially in the immigrant community, we have this of like, what are people going to think about us? What are people, what are people in the community going to say about us? And I think he could – the times that he's come and watched me at the Correspondence Center and he was at the taping of the show, my sister told me that he would watch other people and when he would see them laugh or a kid turn to their parent and sort of hit them and be like, isn't that so true? It made him feel a lot more okay about it. Oh, nice. Yeah, which is very cool. Yeah. Hassan Minaj, this has been a pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Hassan Minaj is a correspondent on The Daily Show, and his new special, Homecoming King, is freshly available on Netflix. 
Coming up next, how did erotica, this preposterous... Together, like garden snakes, they contorted, moaned, gasped, clenched, and throbbed. End up on the New York Times bestseller list. That's next in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. Next, we've got a story that some parents of little kids will consider PG. So, parents of little kids, consider yourself warned. Back in the 1960s, as the sexual revolution ramped up, a lot of Americans also started going for more frank depictions of sex, especially in fiction, in novels. The legal ban on sexually explicit books, like Henry Miller's Tropic of Cancer, ended in 1964. Soon, other A-list literary writers like John Updike were going there. But even more, publishers of very commercial fiction cranked up the new smut machine and churned out trashy sexual romps that became huge bestsellers, such as Valley of the Dolls by Jacqueline Suzanne. She felt herself responding to his embrace with an ardor she had never dreamed she possessed, her mouth demanding more and more. And The Adventurers by Harold Robbins. Her mouth was warm and moist and still tasted of orange soda. And his lips were traveling down her body, over her breasts. Which was great if you were 11 or 12 and finding these paperbacks on your parents' bedside tables. But the literary mandarins were appalled. In 1966, Lewis Nichols, uh, writing in the New York Times about that year's bestsellers, said that, quote, seldom has there been so wretched a collection of titles as appears today. But the greatest example of wretched erotica, truly laughably bad, came along a couple of years later. And how it came along is itself like a comic novel. Studio 360's Sam Kim has this story. It all started in 1966 in this bar in Garden City, Long Island called The Sulky. Which was a place where you could listen to music, have a drink, dance. That's Marilyn Berger. She was the diplomatic correspondent at Newsday, the daily newspaper of Long Island. Back then, many of her co-workers would retire each night to The Sulky, including a 33-year-old columnist named Mike McGrady. Gin mills that year were filled with writers anesthetizing themselves against the harsh new realities of their profession. McGrady died in 2012. In 1970, he wrote a memoir about this period, read here by actor Greg Tannen. To be a serious writer in the year 1966 was also to be a serious drinker. They had a piano bar, you know, and there were some attractive women who hung out there. That's Harvey Aronson. He was a columnist at Newsday. I remember once I drank champagne out of a secretary's shoe and um, told everybody that I was getting um, athlete's foot of the mouth. And they'd be up drinking in this place. George Vesey was Newsday's sports reporter. And then people would talk, and all the, the hair was let down. And uh, They were discussing the, the status of American literature. That's Tony Insolia. He was the editor for Newsday for over 30 years. Stanley Green was the day news editor. Mike used to complain about uh, books like uh, Harold Robbins and uh, Jackie Suzanne. I was appalled by the kind of books making enormous successes. Look at the garbage that gets printed. 
that's when the idea hit him. McGrady thought, Suzanne's and Robin's books were schlock, but they were selling millions of copies. So what if you actually tried to write a preposterously bad erotic novel? Would it be just as successful? Everyone at Newsday could do one chapter. We would each write about one specific perversion, and we put them all together. We could write the whole thing in a week. And what came out of it was a a plan for a writing the worst bestseller in the world. (laughs) He said, we'll make a lot of money. I said, we're not going to make any money. But I thought we'd have a lot of fun. So McGrady got home from the bar that night, poured himself a nightcap, and typed a memo to his co-workers. You are hereby officially invited to become the co-author of a best-selling novel. There will be an unremitting emphasis on sex. Also, true excellence in writing will be quickly blue-penciled into oblivion. He then typed out a plot outline that would connect all the disparate sex scenes. Each chapter will involve Miss Jillian Blake, homewrecker. As the book opens, she learns that her husband William has been conducting an affair. She is unfaithful at first to even the score. She is unfaithful for a while because she enjoys it. She is unfaithful finally because she makes it a goal to destroy the seemingly happy marriages that surround her. The next day, McGrady circulated the memo in the Newsday office. I came in late at night, and I found a note in my mailbox. George Vesey took the memo home. He decided to write his chapter while he was supposed to be doing yard work. So, yeah, mowers would have been on my mind. And I, uh, you know, I typed it out in half an hour. Morton Earbrow found himself staring, staring hard at her slim, exciting face then staring hard at her slim, exciting body. Her arms were slim and exciting, too. The mower is in the garage, she said. She had removed the belt to his Bermuda shorts, and then, without words, they merged. In the dark, in the cool darkness, they communicated. I remember using the word communicated a lot, which is kind of a stupid word for, for making love, but that's, that's what I was up to. Faster and faster they communicated, harder and harder. Fingers and nails on skin, teeth on skin, then great shudders of total communication. They came apart and rested in the dark. He said, I'd forgotten there was more to life than mowing the lawn. Three weeks later... A total of 24 Newsday writers, 20 men and four women, sent in a chapter. A few of the submissions were poetic, sophisticated, intelligent. In other words, unacceptable. Some of the chapters were much too good, and I had to work like hell to make them bad enough to use. You know, it's not easy to write bad. McGrady enlisted one of the writers, Harvey Aronson, to share editing duties. To really write bad is hard, and some of it was just moderately stupid. Together, they downgraded the prose, combined some of the chapters, cut a few submissions, and one chapter that got the axe was Marilyn Berger's. I didn't make the cut, and my sister said, well, it was obviously too well written, and my mother said it wasn't sexy enough. I think that may be the first time I heard my mother say sexy. A couple days before I talked to Marilyn, I went to the archives at Columbia University. That's where Mike McGrady donated many of the documents from his career. I made copies of some of the unused chapters from the book. 
Do you still have your chapter, by the way? No, I was going to ask you if you had it. You know what? I have uh, some of it. And Can I see it? So I handed her a copy. And for the first time in over 50 years, she read her submission that was cut from the manuscript. She pressed her body against his, kissing first his fingers, then his arm, his chest, his mouth. They orchestrated a rhythm that he had once said was composed of everything they both had ever known, of surf and swaying trees, of crowded traffic and musty rooms, of sweet flowers and moonlight, of life itself. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what did you think when you read that? I'm amazed. Yeah. That was pretty... No, I wasn't so naive then. I was just sort of younger. (laughs) (laughs) I don't remember a word of it. And I am so happy you've come up with a copy. Meanwhile, for the submissions that did make the cut, Mike and Harvey were working to cobble them together to make them seem like they were all written by one person. So Mike invented a collective pseudonym for all the writers. Penelope Ash. Penelope Ash, as he described to his co-conspirators, was a demure Long Island housewife. And for the title, the Newsday writers scanned through a list of bestsellers and found that the words stranger and naked were frequently used. So they combined the two together to create the title for their opus. Naked came the stranger. There were 14 chapters in the manuscript. One was by a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter, Robert Greene. She stepped out of the dress. She was wearing no bra, pink white peaks rising from the residue of her tan. Pulitzer Prize winning reporter Jean Golds. And they reached for each other and found pleasure in gentle caresses. Then faster, quicker, faster, needful, Willoughby was lost in immense billowy softness and riotous colors and roaring winds. He was the sand and the sea and the star-pierced sky. When I asked the writers to name their favorite chapter in the book, it was unanimous. I think that John Cummings' chapter is the funniest. John Cummings, who died in 2016, was an investigative reporter at Newsday. He claimed that when he was a young man in the Marines, he had an adventure with a woman in the Philippines who was a hooker, and that at the climactic moment of their involvement pressed an ice cube up his rear end (laughs) and he wrote this line which is in the book you can find it exactly and then ernie felt it she shoved the ice in the big rock candy mountain together like garden snakes they contorted moaned gasped clenched and throbbed ernie found what cervantes and milton had only sought He thought the fillings in his teeth would melt. The imagery was absurd. The perversions were plentiful. It was then that I began to sense that it was going to work. It was actually going to work. It's true. They did succeed in the first part of their plan. They wrote a genuinely terrible novel. But what self-respecting book publisher would actually publish this. I'm a book publisher and proud of it. Yeah, I influenced an entire generation. That's Lyle Stewart speaking in 2005. In the late 60s, he was known for publishing controversial, sexually explicit books like The Art of Erotic Seduction. Mike had previously written about him for a Newsday article. He broached the idea to Lyle Stewart. When Mike told him it was going to be put on, he thought that was great. 
So we needed somebody to front for the book. There was the name, Penelope Ash. We needed a woman who might fit the name. They decided on Mike's sister-in-law, a 38-year-old writer named Billy Young. After weeks of trying to track her down... Hello? Hi, Billy. How are you? She agreed to talk on the phone. Well, actually, Mike had talked to me about it uh, for a while, and I thought it was one of the most beautiful plans I'd ever heard because I was always impressed with what Orson Welles had done with War of the Worlds, and this was just as good a spoof in my mind. So she went to Lyle Stewart, and he loved her. He thought she'd be great as a front for the book. So that was it, and he said he would publish it. So three years after it was just an offhand comment at the sulky bar, the book was finally published. For the cover, Lyle Stewart used this stock photo of a kneeling naked woman. And for the author photo, they used a picture of Billy Young. The plan was for Billy to appear on television and radio posing as Penelope Ash. But before she did, Mike and Harvey prepped her for the interviews. So we went to Billy's home, and she said, you know, what should she do? What can she say? And I remember saying to her, tell them that virginity is like a Tiffany lamp. And she said, what does that mean? And I said, I don't have the faintest idea, but it sounds great. I went into Neven um, Marcus, and I bought a couple of very sexy outfits and suits. It was, you know, a little more flamboyant than I would personally wear. But it, went, but it was for a role, and that's what I wore to be in interviews. Penelope Ash, the author. I think this is what the public is buying today, sex. A couple months later, I'm on my patio. I hear her being interviewed on a radio show. Oh, well, you know, virginity is like a Tiffany lamp. I just laid on the ground on the stone patio and just beat my hand on the ground. I knew I could carry it off. But when it came to fruition, the only emotion that I could tell you that I felt, scared. And it was frightening that the whole world knew me now. In those years, I was pretty shy. And that was what cured me. You take the shyest person and you do that a couple of times and the shyness can be cured. I'm a living example. Across the country, the book sold between 20 and 30,000 copies so far. And they're still going in some areas like hotcakes. Uh, The New York Times printed a uh, one-paragraph dismissive review unaware that it was a spoof. It would be nice if this book could be judged by its cover, which is easily the best part. In the category of erotic fantasy, this one rates about a C. So the hoax seemed to be fooling everyone, and McGrady and the other writers were in no hurry to disabuse the notion that Penelope Ash and the book were real. But then... Somebody uh, tipped off uh, a reporter for the Wall Street Journal. And so they were asked Please keep it secret because we wanted to see how high it would go. Robert Mayer was a columnist at Newsday. He co-wrote one of the chapters. The Wall Street Journal was adamant. They said they weren't going to hold it. They knew enough about it to go with the story. And right after that, all over the world. I mean, it was insane. Newspapers all across the United States jumped on it. It just went wild. Back in 1966, here at the offices of Newsday, 25 young writers got together and perpetrated a gigantic hoax. Naked Came the Stranger was supposed to have been written by a first-time authorist trying her best. Instead, it turns out it was written by a bunch of other people trying to do their worst. 
I was sent off to Paris to cover the Vietnam peace talks. And I opened up the International Herald Tribune while I was waiting for the press conference to begin. And there it was. Naked came the stranger, the spoof of the century. Walter Cronkite sent a uh, helicopter that landed on a lawn across the street from uh, Newsday's office. And Mike and I and a friend named Lou Schwartz were in the helicopter. I don't know how Lou got in there, but he was in the helicopter with us, and they flew us to New York. A new novel about sex in suburbia was published this week. It seems to be on the way to becoming another instant bestseller. But it is not all it seems to be. Since it says Jacqueline Suzanne move over, she got to move way over to make room for 24 men. And that's the way it is, Wednesday, August 6, 1969. And I remember looking down at New York City, and Lou Schwartz said, It's all yours. The city is all yours. <laughs> and on September 1969, the real Penelope Ash made her first national televised appearance on The David Frost Show. Will you now meet the authoress of Naked Came the Stranger, Penelope Ash. They parted the drapes and one after another, I think about 19 of us were there. Uh, We walked through as the author, Penelope Ash. That was was a fun, fun night. We got a lot of applause and Billy came in wandering around the stage with her Russian wolfhound. Why did I bring the dog? I don't have an idea. Maybe I took her because I was so, too scared. David Frost told us afterwards that he was scared um, shitless uh, that the wolfhound was going to have an accident during the program. A month later, the book had sold over 90,000 copies. It gradually crept up the New York Times bestseller list, reaching number three, just behind The Love Machine by none other than Jacqueline Suzanne. In other words, the book that was parodying Suzanne was now rivaling her in sales. Mike and Harvey soon got a call. It was Bernard Geis, the man who published Suzanne's Valley of the Dolls. He called us to his office. He said, you guys write a sequel. You're going to make a million dollars. And Mike and I looked at each other, and we both said no. We did it once. I wasn't going wasn't gonna to do it again. Harvey left Newsday to write for New York Magazine. He's proud of his role in Naked Came to Stranger, but not without reservations. I hope that when I go to the great beyond, that is not the defining clause in the first um, paragraph. I mean, it can be in the the obit, but I don't want it in the first paragraph. Robert Mayer was just as conflicted. After all, the hoax had proved that the standards of readers were even lower than what Mike had cynically predicted. I didn't know whether I should laugh cry. The laugh that, that we had pulled off that this hoax had worked great, but also to uh, to cry at the uh, taste of America that we had exposed. It was a feeling we all shared from time to time. This was how Mike McGrady ended his 1970 memoir. The fun seemed to vanish. Even with the first wild thought that the stunt might work, there was the fear that, yes, the stunt just might work. Later, as it all came to pass, there were always counter-emotions, unexpected misgivings that took the edge off elation. It was too easy. It all went too smoothly. America. 
You sit there, you plump beauty, still buying neckties from sidewalk sharpies, still guessing which walnut shell contains the pea, still praying along with Elmer Gantry. America, sometimes I worry about you. That story was by our Studio 360 producer, Sam Kim. Greg Tannen read from Mike McGrady's memoir, Stranger Than Naked, and Lorraine Maddox read the excerpts from Naked Came the Stranger. He thought the fillings in his teeth would melt. (laughs) It's hot in here. You can find lots of other great background material about the novel at Studio 360, including the story of how it was adapted into an actual porn movie. Ernie... I've been a very naughty little girl, and I need to be punished. Coming up next, according to data analysis, even really excellent writers can be kind of predictable. There are some kind of words and patterns and techniques that they use that are remarkably consistent over the course of their life. Applying digital analytics to the fiction of James Joyce, Jane Austen, and, uh uh-oh, Kurt Anderson. That is up next in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. Studio 360. I've got a weakness for statistics and graphs and charts, and another weakness for literature. So this new book is very deep in my sweet spot. It's called Nabokov's Favorite Word is Mauve, What the Numbers Reveal About the Classics, Bestsellers, and Our Own Writing. Ben Blatt analyzes famous novels statistically, and he has unearthed some fascinating patterns. For instance, did you know that the female pronoun she, and this is kind of amazing, only appears once in The Hobbit? Or that James Joyce uses more exclamation points than pretty much any other legit author. Anyhow, Ben Blatt, welcome to Studio 360. It's great to be here talking with you. So did you study statistics in college? Is that a thing you knew? I was an applied math and stat major, and you know I've been writing kind of as a data journalist covering pop culture and doing some consulting for other organizations as well. But I just wanted to know how kind of these books are actually constructed instead of sometimes relying on subjective Uh, advice that whoever throws out there may not be backed up by fact. Well, or, and as we all knew from from junior high school English classes, when teachers told us, oh, the symbolism is this, that, of course, the author never intended. And, of course, even though the author probably doesn't intend any of these things you've discovered, they are like some form of fingerprint or blood type or something fairly unique, right? Right. You know, one kind of thing that made this book possible is that Writers are consistent from book to book and really years and decades later. Um, it's not that in one book they write one way and in one book they write another way. There are some kind of words and patterns and techniques that they use that are remarkably consistent over right. the course of their right. life. I, I was interested to read. There, there were these guys back in the way back in the day in the early 60s who, who sort of established the model that you're using, you know? 
Yeah, so, if, you know, it was two statisticians in the 1960s, and they literally cut pieces of paper, and, you know, even at one point, a graduate student sneezed, and all their work got destroyed for the day. Because there was no, there were no electronic texts then, right? There were no electronic texts, which made it very difficult, but... Even using very simple methods, it's actually remarkably consistent. Even with the technology from the 1960s, now, you know, helped out with computers, but the same methods, you can still pick out the authors because their writing is so consistent book to book and work to work. Uh, so you, you, one thing you write about, and this makes sense, but I'd never heard the term of art, that authors have their own special cinnamon words. Explain what a cinnamon word is. So cinnamon words is kind of this term that I phrase to describe a phenomenon of a word that a particular author likes to use often throughout their text at kind of an extreme ratio uh, compared to all other authors. And kind of the motivation for looking at this was I had read this book that just asked authors their favorite words. And Ray Bradbury said, my favorite word is cinnamon because it reminds me of my grandmother's pantry. The tomb breathed out a sick exhalation of paprika, cinnamon, and powdered camel dung. There was an insect sound which grew large among the cinnamon hills. The cinnamon dusty road. Don't they smell like cinnamon? Cinnamon. 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 Now I hover like a dust, a cinnamon, upon the soft wind. So he's using it all the time. And kind of building on that, I wanted to look at, you know, hundreds of other authors to see were there other similar words that were jumping out of a writer's uh, kind of inner voice. What are, what are some other well-known authors' cinnamon words? So I think, you know, the one cool thing with the cinnamon words experiment is that not always, but most of the time, once you hear the words, or maybe even just hearing the words and not knowing the author, you could kind of guess who the author uh, could be, or at least what they're writing about. So civility, fancying, and imprudence are the cinnamon words of Jane Austen. (laughs) Yeah. He answered me with the utmost civility. 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 His formal civility was... His imprudence had made her miserable It was the imprudence which had brought... I cannot help but fancying the Fancying. 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 Fancying himself so very great fits in with her whole aesthetic very well. Do you have a a cinnamon word in your writing? Overall, probably is probably my favorite word. And you also talk about how different authors um, use cliches. Now, cliches is not as easy to define. How did you define cliches? I was really looking at phrases that are overused time and time again. So I relied on this book called The Dictionary of Cliches by an author named Christine Ammer, and there's over 4,000 cliches in it. Um, everything from, you know, fish out of water to dress to kill. And the most cliched author in my sample was James Patterson, uh, who's kind of the most sold author in America and is known to output books at an extreme rate. And he uses about 160 cliches per 100,000 <laughs> words. And I even have like a little sample just to give you a sense of how this kind of reflects in the writing. This is a piece of dialogue sure. from his book. But if it gets you Mary Smith, then everything's okay. And you're a hero. Russian roulette, she said dryly. Name of the game, I said. By the way, I don't want to be a hero. It goes with the territory. She finally smiled. America's Sherlock Holmes. Didn't I read that somewhere about you? Don't believe everything you read. So you can kind of tell that this. So is that like an, was that was one passage. This was one passage. You, you know, didn't put. You didn't make that. Wow. This it is was just from a James Patterson novel. Of course, he was, he was I, going for the gold. I w- He really was. That almost sounds as though <laughs> the person who wrote it was like going ironic and saying, "How many cliches can I stuff into these 150 words?" Okay, it's time for me to go in your MRI machine. My producers gave you my three novels: Turn of the Century, Heyday, and True Believers. 
and uh, you did whatever magical uh, statistical analysis you did. This will be a bit of an experiment to see how writers react to their own writing under the analysis. So we will start, I think, with the cinnamon words. Okay. And these are words that you use at an extreme rate. Okay. So your top three cinnamon words are bullshit, fucking, and unsmiling. Uh, I'm proud of those. Uh, that's interesting. That's very interesting. So I did also make a PG version of that list just in case the, <laughs> yeah, the other shoot. three weren't good for air. Uh, yeah. So the, the cinnamon words, the PG ones, were unsmiling, randomly, and fake. Unsmiling costumed panthers then, and unsmiling costumed rappers now. Tall and unsmiling. Of a bruised, unsmiling mouth. He grabbed at a new thought, randomly. 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 Good fake aristocratic furniture for the good fake aristocrats. Fake, 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 fake enthusiastic, utopian zombie voice. And at least for me, unsmiling was really the word that jumped out. Because I don't think I've ever used the word unsmiling in my writing or even in conversation. Interesting. Uh, And you were using that about 16 times. And I I was kind of curious if that's a word that you use in your day-to-day conversation as well. Uh, Not probably once, I think, in my life. But I'll, I'll have to ask my family if I've ever used that word. So unsmiling randomly and fake. Interesting. Interesting. Um, but I like the, the R-rated one better, actually, although I like randomly and fake are okay with me as well. So um, how about my cliché uh, quotient? So the clichés that you use in all of your novels, I will give you some credit that they're not the most egregious at all. I think they're kind of just how people well, talk. You. But okay. uh, beginning of the end, really and truly, and bleeding heart. The beginning of the end was nigh, for the gold rush had begun. That artsy cop show they have with that bleeding heart actress. Total bleeding heart liberals. Bleeding heart. Bleeding heart. PG may be really and truly mad. Whenever she would ask if Ben really and truly loved her. Really and truly. Really and truly. Really and truly. Could Alex really and truly have forgotten what happened? Those are identified in the dictionary of cliches. And overall, you were at 119 per 100,000 words. That's fairly high. So fairly high, lower lower than maybe the New York Times bestseller cliche rate. Right. But... Significantly so it's, higher, it's, you could say, than some so of the So it's really the, the, the worst of both worlds. It's it, too many cliches to win Pulitzer Prizes, but not enough cliches to be a bestseller. i got to switch it around one way or the other. Well, I do hope that this uh, changes your writing. I hope not too drastically because yeah. uh, it was you know, already going fairly well before. Well, when a fucking kid like you gives me this bullshit, I'm kind of unsmiling about it. You know what I mean? <laughs> so I, I actually am working on a book with Alec Baldwin that is a parody of uh, Donald Trump. I've heard, yes. Uh, so do you think when, when I'm done with that, and obviously uh, there will be a lot of lot more fantastics and tremendouses and people are sayings uh, than, than I would ordinarily use? And a lot of people are saying... People are saying, many, many people are saying, you know... You know, a lot of people are saying that and a lot of people are saying... A lot of people are saying... Tremendous, 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 fantastic, really fantastic. Fantastic. Do you think you'd be able to see the Kurt Anderson fingerprints in there apart from the deliberate Donald Trumpisms? I do think we'd be able to see, you know, I could do a little comparison to see which words that Donald Trump uses all the time that are missing from your book. Right. But overall, I do still think that there are plenty of words and structures that are just going to be unable. You'll be unable to remove them from your writing. And no matter yeah. how hard you try, it will be Kurt Anderson and Donald Trump and Alec Baldwin. <laughs> we, 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 we will well, we'll reconvene and see that. It's interesting that you say that because – and it was interesting to read your book as I was preparing to work on this one because I made my own little – handmade. I have my own little glossary of, I don't know, a couple of hundred uh, terms and phrases 
um, some of them familiar, some of them less, that he uses. So um, I, I was just doing artisanally what you've done with your massive computer power. Uh, well, good luck. This was a great debut and, as you could tell, completely fascinated me. So thanks. I'm happy you enjoyed it. It was great talking with you. Ben Blatt's Nabokov's favorite word is mauve is now available everywhere you buy books. If you're listening on the radio and want to hear that story with none of those bleeps, you can listen to the unexpurgated digital version at studio360.org. And while you're at it, subscribe to our podcast there or through iTunes or wherever you go to get your podcasts. That's it for this week's episode. Studio 360 is a co-production of WNYC and PRI, Public Radio International. Our executive producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is Andrew Adam Newman. Our technical director, Louis Mitchell. Our producers are Daniel Guimet, Sam Kim, Skylar Swenson, Tommy Bazarian, Zoe Saunders. And our intern is Max Gibson, to whom we are now finally wishing an extremely fond farewell. And I'm Kurt Anderson. Thanks for listening. PRI Public Radio International. What's the matter? Next time in Studio 360? Daddy. Daddy, you're different. Well, how, honey? How am I different? What if there are other worlds out there with other versions of us in them? That's next time in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC.